Good morning, guys. Good to see you guys again. Uh, I missed you last week. I don't know if you miss me when I'm gone, but I miss you guys. I really, I don't, I'm not trying to elicit anything other than being honest. Miss you guys when I'm not here. Good to be with you. Uh, I was down at Reality LA, had a wonderful time down there, uh, was there for Pastor Tim Chaddock's send-off. That was his last Sunday at Reality LA. And it was also the commissioning of Pastor Jeremy Treat as the new pastor for preaching and vision at Reality LA. And you guys will get to meet him in the coming months. We'll have him here to preach and you'll get to spend some time with him. An incredible, incredible man of God and his reality family. We're very happy to have him in that role. In this week's bulletin and also on the website, you can find a video that we put there for you of last week's send-off of the Chaddocks and commissioning of Pastor Jeremy Treat and the other pastors there, as well as a letter written from the Reality Family of Churches about our next endeavor, the way that we believe as a family of churches, the Holy Spirit is leading us in mission in this season. So if you didn't see that in the bulletin that you got via email this week, go to the website, be aware of that. Ten years ago, we as a church sent Tim and Lindsay Chaddock to Los Angeles to plant Reality LA. They were our first church plant. They were our firstborn. We consider our church plants to be like kids and they're our firstborns. And it's become in the last 10 years a healthy, faithful, and fruitful church of about 3,000 people right in the middle of Los Angeles. Yeah, praise God. Glory to God. Glory to God. And Tim and Lindsay and the whole Chaddock family, or three girls included, have fulfilled their ministry in LA. Isn't that an incredible thing? Just like the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. They fulfilled, they obeyed Jesus to the end with their participation in Reality Los Angeles. And now we have the tremendous privilege and joy to partner with Reality LA and the rest of the Reality family of churches in sending Tim and Lindsay once again, this time, as you know, to plant a new church in London, England. We together, as the family of Reality, are having another baby. And this will make eight realities, Carpinteria, Ventura, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, Stockton, San Francisco, Boston, and now London. I think that's eight. Yes, eight. And as part of the sending process, Tim and Lindsay and their three daughters, Lily, Phoebe, and Paige, are going to be moving to Carpinteria for the next few months before they relocate to the UK in early, of ne- early next year. The goal of them being here with us in the coastlands is that they might work closely with us in preparation and have a season of refreshment before this new church plan. But also that we, as three campuses, all three campuses will be joining for this, that we, that you, would become more connected to them through their ministry to us, and that we would really catch the vision of what God wants to do in London and in Western Europe, that we'd really catch the vision. So to that end... Tim will be preaching for the next several weeks to all three campuses. Santa Barbara's going to get it, Ventura's going to get it, and we're going to get it live. They'll be joining in with the sermons. And this will be a great season for us of unity and shared vision as we work toward this new church plant together in obedience to Jesus and his great commission to us. So for you guys, I want you to start to connect yourself heart and vision-wise to the Chaddocks into our shared vision for church planning in London and Western Europe. All of us are going to have an opportunity to sow into this work and to participate in it. We'll start prayer meetings in October that we'll all be invited to, weekly prayer meetings for this endeavor. We'll have a prayer tour to the city of London at the end of July, beginning of August, sometime in there, and you will all be invited to come along and pray on site. And also just through love and encouragement to the Chaddocks, now we can begin to participate in this season. And that starts for us right now. Because here with us today, for all three campuses, having been faithful to fulfill his ministry in Los Angeles, now embarking on a new adventure and inviting us into it, our firstborn son, whom we love dearly, Pastor Tim Chaddock. 
1 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 15 through verse 1 of chapter 10. As you're turning there, I, I really want us to hold those two things together. That we listen to what God wants to say about this vision for church planning, but I also at the same time desperately want this for you, for my own life, for my own family. I want us to think about our own souls. I want us to think about about our own lives because, my dear friends, one of the dangers for us is to only think big picture and in the midst of all of that, lose sight of what God wants to do with us here and now. God cares about your choices today. God cares about how you speak to your husband, speak to your wife, speak to your children. The choices you're going to make this fall financially for your, for your schools, for whatever it is, God cares. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through this series. Because one of the things that the books of First and Second Samuel and all the books regarding the great kings of Israel teach us is the importance of choices, the importance of learning to, to listen to God and to walk with him. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go. And will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until this appointed time since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they rose early, and at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on. But you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? This is God's word. Let me pray for us once more. Father, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. May you open our eyes open our ears, open our hearts to receive all that it is that you would desire to say to us corporately as a, as a body, but also individually as, as men and women, revealing to us how much you care about our, our choices, how much you care about our character. And Father, we recognize that you have had these things written in your most holy word for our instruction Not so that we might critique, but so that we might learn and be shaped. God, shape us. Shape us. Spirit, we invite you to speak to us and shape us. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.
ever since the Titanic, this whole idea that the captain goes down with his ship has been ingrained into our imagination. But now, several times in the past few years, a captain has actually been the first to leave the ship, placing his life ahead of others. The first time just a few years ago off the coast of Italy, and then last year in South Korea. You may remember reading about it in the news. The pictures are all over the internet. The Korean captain was one of the first stepping to safety as he left his vessel in danger, left hundreds of souls in danger. Once ashore, he was immediately arrested. And yet if you read the stories about that day, you will find that there were, in stark contrast to the captain, other crew members, like one 22-year-old woman who heroically stayed to help everyone she possibly could, even giving up her own life jacket. Now, why is it when we hear these stories in the the news, we we hear about that woman and we think, oh, her actions were so right, they were so heroic. Why? Because in her life we see conviction. Conversely, on the other hand, when we hear about the captain, we think, oh no, I don't want to make a choice like that. When we hear these stories, whether in the news or in our own neighborhoods. Is it all just a matter of having the right rules and regulations in place? No, it's more than that. Nor are these big moments that make the headlines ever just about one isolated choice. They're about a culmination of choices. Because friends, getting to the place of abandoning ship or saving lives is a matter of character. It's a matter of your character. Now, few of us would ever hold such a position or maybe even face such a crisis, but all of us are responsible for our own lives and we will face our own tests and the choices that you and I make now, they matter. In answer to three great questions about life, C.S. Lewis used the image of a fleet of ships going out to sea. He said, mission is where your ship is headed. Ethics is making sure your ship doesn't bump into the other ship. And virtue is making sure your ship doesn't sink. Now, the term virtue seems strange to use in like a daily conversation. Like, hey, how's how's virtue going in your life? Like, it's just a very unfashionable word. And, And maybe it's because, you know, there's so many things that men and women are invested in. I mean, if you go to Barnes and Nobles and you look at the self development section, you're going to find all kinds of New York times bestsellers on, on skills and business and career and your physical health, but virtue probably not going to find it. I'm still waiting for Cosmo to come out with the virtue issue. 30 ways to virtue. It's probably not going to happen. It's a very unfashionable word, but maybe it's because that word is often misunderstood. But virtue has to do with your character. Let me put it very simply. Character is what you become through habit and choice. Choices you make on a daily basis, they affect, they they, they shape the type of person you're going to be next week. Next month, next year. Character is about what you become through habit and choice. Virtue is what happens when those choices are good. Vice is what happens when those choices are bad. One of the simplest definitions of virtue is this. It's the strength of your character. Many of us are only concerned with the big decisions. Should I buy this house? Should I send my kid to this school? Should I marry this person? And don't misunderstand me. Those are huge decisions and God cares about them. Yes. But God not only cares about the decisions that you make in public in the spotlight, but the decisions you make in secret. As I believe it was Warren Wearsby who once said, character is what you are in the dark. When nobody else is looking. I'm often asked, about the big choices I make in life. And yet rarely, as a Christian, am I asked about the daily choices that I make. 
And yet this is what character is all about. For example, if I want to become, I'll just use a marriage illustration. If I want to become the type of person who would protect my wife in a moment of crisis, if I would jump in front of a, of a truck or take the bullet for her, then, and I hope every husband in this room would want to do that. Wives, this is where you nudge your husband's like, yes, the answer is yes, you would want to do that. If I want to become that type of man who will act in that way in a moment of crisis, then it means me making a thousand and one small decisions every day to put her before myself, to help her in the daily responsibilities, to relieve her of the burden that is on her. See, as we go through this study, I want you to keep this in mind. The David and Goliath moments are preceded by thousands of smaller, yet no less important moments. But before we get to the famous King David, we see Israel's first king, and his name is Saul. If you've ever read about the life of Saul through the historical books in the Old Testament, then you will know that he becomes paranoid, he becomes jealous, he becomes unreasonable, and he becomes violent but he doesn't start that way. He doesn't start that way. So where did he go wrong? Well, as you can probably guess, it started behind the scenes within his own heart. See, good or bad choices are not only indicators of our present character, but also our future of the types of men and women that we will become. If I can just quote C.S. Lewis again, first of many times in my 12-week tenure here. C.S. Lewis said, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters is those little marks or twists on the central inside part of the soul which are going to turn it in the long run into a heavenly or hellish creature. The decisions you and I make today are a part of who we will become. Some of you, you may not know the direction you need to go in life. Maybe you don't even know Christ this morning. Our hope as a church is to present Jesus to you. But many of you, on the other hand, you know Christ. You know the direction your life is headed, but you need to learn to live in that direction. Because, friends, let's be honest. It is possible to be a believer and make terrible choices. Can I get, yeah, okay, I got one honest amen in the room. Can I get an amen from the whole church? Let's just be real. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> See, God not only wants us to do something wise, God wants us to become wise people. God not only wants us to do something compassionate, he wants us to become compassionate people. God not only wants us to do something or say something truthful, he wants us to become truthful people. It's about transformation. And the book of 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of transformation, of a nation, of its leaders. But the transformation we will see over these 12 weeks is not always good. Sometimes the transformation is bad. And the change for good or evil is determined by how a person responds to God. These are some of the most historic and famous accounts from the entire ancient world. But these stories are not written for our entertainment. They are written as revelation. These stories, as we go through them, are about how God deals with people and about how people deal with God. See, I find it really helpful when I look at the lives and decisions of others. It helps me to think about my own. Okay, I love films. I love novels. I love stories. And one of the things I love about them is when I watch a story unfold, I see people making either bad or good decisions, and I make little notes to self in my own heart. Like, oh, that was a terrible decision. Or the same is true when you read the news. We read about somebody who made an awful choice in a place of government, and it's so easy to, at a distance, simply look at that person's life and judge them. But friends, do you learn from them? It's this whole thing with reality TV shows. I actually rarely ever watch them, and in Los Angeles, our church often got mistaken for a reality TV show. (laughs) I said, well, in some ways it is. Come join the church, see. 
But there's this habit that we have of watching people's lives play out on the screen and we get very used to judging them without learning from them. Oh, those hoarders, they're the ones with the problems. <laughs> but do we, do we actually learn? And most importantly, do we learn from Scripture? Because the stories contained in Scripture, the lives and decisions of men and women in the Bible, we're told that they were written for our instruction. Why is it so important for us to study them? Because these stories come with built-in commentary. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll see events taking place, and then you'll see a little sentence like, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Or maybe a sentence like, they did not heed the voice of the Lord. Or another sentence, they followed after God's heart. Friends, these stories are written for our instruction. And what I love about the Bible is it's brutally honest brutally honest about the lives of the people within it, more honest than we are, more honest than we are. See, oftentimes, you know, our culture has drawn a curtain on two things, process and consequence. We don't like to deal with the process of how people's character is shaped, and we do not like to talk about consequences, But those are the very things that scripture highlights, the process of how men and women are shaped by God and also the consequences of their decisions. See, some of us, we would love just an innocent little story that we can read along in the Bible. But as we read scripture, along with those moments of courage and prayer and worship and repentance are also found moments of betrayal, abuse, sexual seduction, and brutality. All the stuff that tends to be taken out of the children's Bibles. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? How many of you just have children's Bibles in your house? It's just the funniest thing. There are some really good children's Bibles out there, but some of them shockingly leave out giant portions of scripture. Book of Judges? Eh, it's like Samson was really strong. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> okay, one children's Bible I have in my house is the Berenstein Bears Bible. And you know who's on the cover? The Berenstain Bears. Now, this Bible is just a regular children's translation of the entire Bible. But inserted along the way are pictures of what? The Berenstain Bears. And one day, this, this struck me when I was... My, one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, asked me a question about the book of Judges. <laughs> if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's basically adventures in chaos and idolatry. That's what the book of Judges is. And one time there was a section in Judges 19. It's this terrible story of this woman that's like hacked into pieces. And right next to it was Sister Bear from the Berenstein Bears. And I'm thinking, what are we, see, what are we teaching our children? Like, we can't only teach them the heroic moments. We also need to look at the bad decisions that men and women made in Scripture so that we might learn. Scripture pulls the curtain back. We need to see. We need to see the truth. And along the way, as we go through this journey, we're going to see, we're going to learn about bad choices. We're also going to learn about courage. We're going to learn about jealousy. We're going to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about what it means to love your enemies or to live through a wilderness season. Some of you feel like you're there. We're going to deal with entitlement, talk about kindness, passion, and even facing betrayal. And along the way, my hope is that we would ask questions like, how can I avoid a life of self-deception? How can I be faithful even when it seems like nothing is going according to my plan? Or how can I be forgiven and restored when I know I've fallen into sin, when I know that I've made bad choices? We're going to look at that through these two kings. We will see King David go from an obscure shepherd boy to one of the most celebrated kings in history. But on the other hand, we'll also see Saul go from a wonderful candidate to a cautionary tale. And our attention, friends, is always drawn to how they responded to God. And what we will find is a great contrast between the two of them. Two alternative ways to live. Which one will sink? Which one will sail? It was a turbulent period in Israel. 
about the year 1000 BC, during which the leadership of this nation went through a radical change, the greatest change since Moses. See, up to this point in the Old Testament, Israel basically functioned like a tribal community, but they were about to become a monarchy. At this time, their security was threatened by other nations. They no longer trusted the prophets to lead them. They wanted a king. But more importantly, they no longer wanted God. And in the chapter preceding, the one we're looking at this morning, is this famous account of all the people of Israel going to the well-known prophet Samuel saying, give us a king. But it's important for us to know this. It wasn't bad that they wanted a king. It was that they wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. It wasn't the content of their request that was bad. It was the intent of their request that was wrong. They didn't want a king under God. They wanted a king instead of God. And such is the case oftentimes for you and I. We don't want to be governed by God. And in this chapter, we discover the answer to their request. God tells the prophet Samuel, who in turn tells the man Saul that he, of all people, is going to be a royal ruler in Israel. Now we're told a lot about Saul. He was a good-looking man. He watched over animals. He was really tall. He was like an ancient Brit Merrick, if you can just get that into your mind. (laughs) from a a small but wealthy tribe in Israel. Now, most people know that King David was a shepherd, but so was Saul. Although apparently, Saul was not a very good shepherd because according to the story, he lost his dad's donkeys. And he goes on a three-day journey. He's like, where's the donkeys? (laughs) Not a very good shepherd. In fact, in this very first chapter, you can see hints of Saul's later behavior. He's just unaware. When they couldn't find the donkeys, Saul's own servant was like, hey, I have an idea. Let's go see the prophet Samuel. Now, Samuel was one of the most famous people in Israel. And Saul's like, who? Oh, a prophet. Oh, yeah, Samuel. Okay, should we pay him? You don't pay a prophet. Are you kidding me? He was, he was unaware. And at the very beginning of the story, we see hints of his future character. He had lost his father's donkeys, and yet he finally listens to his servant who suggests that they go see this man of God, Samuel. And what I love about this story is we see that God uses even the most practical things to bring us to the most spiritual Saul's just out looking for his donkeys and has this life-changing meeting with Samuel. I love that, dear church, because we cannot always know God's purposes in the daily events of life unless he reveals them. But we can know this. God is aware of them all. God is at work behind the scenes. You and I don't know what's going to come of that that coffee meeting we're going to have tomorrow morning, the conversation that you're going to have at work, the people that you might meet today, or what your life is going to look like even in this church. We don't know, but God knows, and you can rest in this. God is at work behind the scenes. Saul's just going about his daily business. He had no idea, but finally, these two men whose lives would become intertwined and play a revolutionary role in a nation, here they meet. And here we see the significance of their meeting. It's a strange story, all leading to this point. Saul goes to Samuel. He's asking about donkeys. Samuel's like, you're going to be a king. It's all leading to this point. It will change Saul, and it will change the country. And what is the climax of this chapter? I don't know if you saw it. The climax, everything this whole story is working towards is this. He would hear the word of God. The entire journey, the meeting between Saul and Samuel is all leading to this point. You will hear the word of God. Church, the Bible tells us that God speaks. God speaks to us through his word. God speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. He expresses his desire, his power, and his purposes. And God has spoken to us ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, who is called the very word of God. 
The news about Jesus is God's word to us. And I want to make that clear because we only see the significance of this chapter and the rest of the story if we see that everything revolves around the word of God. And just as God's word came that day, dear friends, God's word comes to us. God's word comes to you and I. So what does it say? Let me just give you three things. First of all, God's word, as it came to Saul, it comes to you and I first with a declaration of who you are. God's word speaks a declaration of who you are. This is the the foundation for how every one of us discovers our true identity and the source of our character. It is the word of God. In verses 15 and 16, Saul meets Samuel and Samuel declares who Saul is and what he's going to become. God's word is a gift. I want you to see that. God's word is a gift. Think about it. Saul did nothing to earn this gift. When Samuel says, you're going to be a prince, you're going to be a ruler over my people Israel, Saul did nothing to deserve this. In fact, Saul was still focused on lesser things. (laughs) I mean, the story's hilarious. Samuel's like, you're going to be a ruler over Israel. He's like, yeah, but you see my donkeys? Just need to know where they are. He's like, hey, don't worry about the donkeys, okay? We'll deal with that later. It's like, okay, if I'm king, does that mean I get my donkeys back? (laughs) Friends, you and I are so often focused on lesser things, but what draws our attention to something greater is the word of God. Hearing the word of God changes everything. Now, at first glance, you might think, wait, what on earth does reading about some ancient royal ruler have to do with me, have to do with us? more than you think. Because according to the Bible, God is the king of the universe. God is king with a capital K. And according to Genesis, all human beings were actually created as royal figures. This is unlike any other worldview that you can find across the globe, that all of mankind are viewed as image bearers of God. Furthermore, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed. And as 1 Peter chapter 2 declares over you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, the Bible is all about how you and I come under the gracious governance of God and what happens when we do. And what's fascinating about this story, about this passage, is that the word, when Samuel speaks to Saul about his future, the word king is actually not used. Did you notice? It's actually the word prince, and it's full of importance. A prince under God. That was to be Saul's title. A prince means someone who is governed by another. And that's what you and I are to be. Governed under God. See, Saul forgot this lesson. But from day one, when he heard the word of God, he knew that he was to be governed by God. He was to learn about using authority by first being under authority. See, many of us, we want some kind of power or influence over others. And yet, do we know what it means to actually be under God's authority? Some of you, even today, you want to lead. You want to lead, or maybe you are leading in one capacity or another, whether it is, it's within your family, amongst your friends, in your workplace. Some people want to lead, but if you're going to lead well, you must first learn to be led well. You must be governed by God and know that his declaration over you, his opinion over you is what matters most. Listen, one of the lessons that God has been just hammering home to my heart and to my wife's heart in these past few years is this. Whatever we are before men, what matters is who we are before God. People are going to have 
different opinions about you, different ideas for your life. But what matters most is that you are under God. And it is here that we see God at work behind the scenes, even when few people are watching. Let's be honest. We're trained to think that the most important things happen in public when, in fact, they often happen in private. Let me actually state that even stronger. Some of your most radical moments in your personal history will actually take place in obscurity. They'll actually take place in the seasons that you don't think matter. And some of you are there right now. You're like, oh, the season's whatever. I'm just in my job and nothing's changing. And, you know, I don't really have a lot of opportunities here. And the season doesn't really matter. Oh, yes, it does. It matters to God. And some of the most radical, life-changing moments are going to happen in this season. But do you really believe that God cares about every moment of your life? Do you really believe that God is at work even right now? Some of you say, nothing's happening, and yet God says to you, I'm shaping you. I'm shaping you. Remember that what makes headlines to us doesn't always make headlines to God. God looks on the heart. Every day is filled with significance for those who have ears to hear. So first, the word of God comes with a a declaration of who you are, just like it did for Saul that day. But then you must learn to live out of that. And so secondly, we see that the word of God comes to us with a direction that you should go. God makes a declaration. He says, I say, this is who you are. If your faith is in Christ, you are a new creation. You are God's people. But secondly, a direction you should go. Saul was told, beginning in verse 16 and continuing on throughout the rest of the chapter and the remaining chapters, what he was then to do. Why was he given this position? So that he would lead, save, and serve the nation of Israel. His public position was a position of service. He was given a direction. God was saying through the prophet, here's who I've declared you to be. Now go in this direction. Serve those people. Love those people. And church, this is true for you and I. God didn't give us verses like 1 Peter chapter 2, like chosen generation, royal priesthood, so you could feel just better about yourself while you sit on your couch and do nothing. (laughs) It was so that you could get on mission. It was so that you could depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and say, God, as I belong to you, I've been purchased at a price, what do you want to do? And God says, here is the way, walk in it. This is what I want you to do. I want you to serve other people. And I've given you power for it. And that is true even here in this story. Not only is Saul authorized, he's empowered. If you read on in chapter 10, which I highly encourage you to do so, because I know all of you read your Bibles for hours every day here in the coastlands. (laughs) As you read on, you'll notice that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. In fact, that's what the oil poured over his head represented. It was a sign that someone was chosen for a special position of service and leadership. And not only that, he was empowered. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. All these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Saul, like us, was not only given a new title, he was given a new role. He was given a new heart. He was to be under new management. God was making him on the inside what he had already been declared to be on the outside. Samuel was basically saying to Saul, in order for all this to happen, this new role that you have, God's got to turn you into another person. And that's what we want to talk about. That's what we want to ask God for in this season. God, what kind of inside-out transformation are you seeking to do in my life? Because we're given more than just a new role, we're given a new heart. And one of the main points of this chapter, which is key for all of us, is what it's showcasing for us, is it's teaching us about the relationship between God's word and God's people. God's word comes to us like it came to Saul, and it will come to David, but what will we do with that? 
See, Samuel makes it very clear from the outset that kingship is not about accomplishing Saul's mission, but God's mission. The role of the prophet was to give direction. And we have God's word. We have God's spirit directing us. Saul would be declared ruler by the word of God, but he would also be directed by the word of God. And listen, like Saul, none of our abilities or our positions, whether at work, in the home, or here in the church, are ever a substitute for our character. Some of you might be incredibly gifted and anointed at something. And that may be so, but it's never a substitute for your character. In fact, I speak as one who recognized early on in my Christian life that some of my giftings far outweighed my character. Two years ago, my church gave me a a sabbatical, three months, and with the encouragement of Pastor Britt, Pastor Dave Lomas, I was encouraged that first month of my sabbatical to go deep into my soul, not just read a bunch of books and learn new things, but just go deep into my soul. And I hate journaling. Is that okay? Can I talk about this here? Okay, I think it's like a Christian thing where you have to journal. I naturally hate journaling. I know some Christians, new Christian life, new believers Bible, journal, nice pencil. Like you think, okay, this is the Christian life. I just don't like journaling, but I force myself to do it. It's been very life-giving for me. But during that month, I felt compelled to write down all of the strengths that God had given, was giving me in life, but also to write down the weaknesses. So along my journey, as painful and encouraging as it was, I write all these down, these two categories, strengths and weaknesses. And what I realized by the end of that journey is everything in the strengths category was all about my giftings and everything in the weakness category was all about my character. I took that list to my wife and I said, is this true? (laughs) And my wife, who's the sweetest thing on planet earth said, yes. (laughs) If you were to make a list, what would it say? What would it reveal? If you were to make a list today, strengths and weaknesses, or let me put it this way, what is the Holy Spirit wanting to change from the inside out? Where is it that the Holy Spirit is wanting to shape your character? Listen, one of the lessons you've got to learn is none of our positions or our abilities or our giftings are ever a substitute for our character. And so, thirdly, the Word of God does not only give us a declaration of who we are, a direction we should go, but a decision that you need to make. Whenever you read God's Word, there's a decision you need to make. And in this story, the stage was set. God's word had been declared, a new direction given, and yet Saul had decisions to make. None of his experiences, even as as supernatural as they were, were ever going to be a substitute for his choices. Because friends, you see, between what we have been declared to be and what you are destined to become are the decisions that you make. Let me even show you how this works out in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 1. Many of us know this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called or declared the children of God, and so we are. That's a profound identity statement. But then listen what it says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as we is. Oh, glory! But look at that last sentence. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That last sentence says there's something you need to do now. You need to get rid of the impurities of your life. This is who God's declared you to be. Get rid of the impurities in your life. Develop character now that anticipates God's coming kingdom. Now, at first, this is a little bit hard, like learning a second language or learning to to play an instrument. It will take a lot of effort, but the more you are at it, the more it will become like a second nature. 
I remember when I was young learning how to play guitar and it just felt so alien to me, so foreign to me. I was like, I just want to play Zeppelin and it's not working. And it, was, it just felt so like stilted and awkward and mechanical. But over time, playing felt like a second, second language. Friends, God is, see, faith receives this new citizenship from God. But virtue is about learning the language. You've been given the passport. You're in, but you've got to learn the language. You've got to learn how to live. And it's not just about the big moments, but even the little ones. C.S. Lewis said, the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. Saul had so much going for him. We're told he had a strong body, humble mind, new heart, spiritual power, and a personal prophet who prayed for him. (laughs) That's amazing. I want all of those things. Strong body, humble mind, new heart, a a personal prophet, and yet so much trouble comes to him. Why? Because he refused to make decisions in light of what God declared. It was because he would not be governed by God. He would rather govern himself. Friends, I want you to become the men and women that can grow in both times of plenty and in times of lack. Behind the scenes or when you are on the stage. To be men and women who become more of your future glory self. That's the direction you are headed, becoming your future glory self. I want you to go on to victories you never dreamed of. But right now, you might even feel a heaviness because some of the bad decisions that you've made. When I think of choices, I know I've felt the same. Some of you might even have abandoned your ship. Maybe you haven't even been in close fellowship It's your first time back at church and you're thinking, okay, this sounds really great for somebody who's got it all together, but my ship has either sunk or it is sinking. And as you think about your choices and you think about character, you might think, well, what hope is there for me? Well, God's word has good news. And it's good news that Saul forgot. And what I hope you always remember See, these stories are not about those who fall and those who don't. It's about people who turn to God when they fall. The difference between a Saul and a David is repentance. The difference between a Saul and a David is faith. The difference between a Saul and a David is turning to God in our brokenness. But when we do, there's this question in our hearts, what will God do? I've made the bad decision. My character is, is awful right now, and I've just, I haven't been responding. I haven't been following him. I haven't been listening to the word of God and responding well. What will God do? What, how will he respond? Well, the good news is we're already given the response at the very beginning of this book, and it's beautiful, and you and I need it. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, here's what God does. He raises the poor from the dust, And he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Friends, it's you and I coming to God and saying, God, I humble myself before you. Govern me. Pull over me. And he will lift you up. See, David, the great King David, He commits sins worthy of death. And yet he lives. Why? How could David be forgiven? For the same reason God forgives all the terrible choices any of us have made. It is God's grace. God's grace ultimately shown in Jesus. The true king who never made any bad decisions, never sinned, and yet died for all of our bad choices. 
died for all of our sins. The true king, the true savior who would perfectly live on all our behalf and who would put us all before himself, lay down his life to rescue us and truly serve and save. He is the hero of the story. He raises us up. He repairs our sunken ships. The decisions you and I make today, they matter. But the one that matters most is the decision you make today about Jesus. For a few of you, it might be for the first time to say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. Or for the most seasoned Christian in the room, it's I'm coming to you, Jesus. Rule over me. You are king. And understanding that those decisions will actually lead others to or away from Jesus Christ because your decisions affect other people. Amen? They affect other people. The way that you are led by Jesus will then lead others. Do you realize the importance and the implications of that for this town and for Ventura and for Santa Barbara? See, my family and I, we we take these walks by our house that we're about to leave in two weeks. And there's a little hillside and it's just all dirt going up to one of the hills that overlooks Hollywood and downtown Los Angeles. And it's a little steep and some, you know, two of my kids are still really small and I'm the type of person that just likes to rush through everything. I'm like, there, what is the shortest point from point A to point B? Let's do it. But I have children following behind me. So what do I need to do? I have to adjust my steps for the sake of those who are following. I have to adjust my steps in order to help the needs of those following. And you and I must do the same. Every good example must point to the ultimate source. People are following in your footsteps. And we must ask today, are my steps leading to danger? Are they leading to compromise? Are they leading to despair? Or are they leading to hope? I want you to think of the one who leads you. Jesus Christ. He gave his all for you. He adjusted his steps in the direction of the cross for your sake so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be lifted up. He rose again to give you new life. He bridges the gap. He produces life in you and through you. To lead well, you must be led well, and there is no greater leader than Jesus. And he gives you the grace, and he gives you the guidance that you and I need to become what he has declared us to be. Will we respond to God's word? Will we say yes to his rule? Will we say yes to his government? I hope that you will. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would ever so powerfully yet gently reveal to us where there is strength and health in our lives that we might be encouraged. But I also ask that you would reveal areas of weakness knowing this, that you do not reveal areas of weakness to condemn us, but to heal us. And I pray that there would be no one in this room who resists your voice. You have spoken your word to us, God. Would you now grant us the grace to respond God, would you lead us by your spirit right now to say, God, rule over my life. Govern me. Point me in the direction I should go. Holy Spirit, would you fall upon this place and point us all in the direction of Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.